Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Hi, Vanita. Thank you so much for joining me on the How To Money podcast today. Thanks. No worries, Kate. Thank you for inviting me. Now, before we dive in, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you ended up uh, running the Financial Resilience Australia organisation. Sure. So, look, um, you know, I'm a long-time banker. Um, I've worked in ANZ Bank for more than 20 years, and I've done uh, a whole lot of different roles, actually, since I worked with ANZ. So, I've been an academic after I worked with ANZ. I'm doing research on financial well-being for Aboriginal Australians and how people feel about money. Um, I then also was a not-for-profit exec. Um, and in December last year, I decided to set up my own startup enterprise. It's called Financial Resilience Australia. And basically what it's trying to do is build on all of my research and experiences and find ways to help workplaces and homes to improve financial health and well-being in Australia. So I've always focused, all my roles have focused on helping people to manage their money better so that they can have better well-being. And now I think is the perfect opportunity, given we're in the middle of COVID and there's so much financial distress all around us for individuals, their homes and their workplaces. I just felt this would be a perfect time to use that experience to help others to actually improve their well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was so interesting because I don't think there's that many people in Australia that have done PhDs in the personal finance and financial well-being space, are there? <laughs> yes, I think I'm one of the few nerds who's actually mm. bothered to do research in this space. Uh, but, you know, from my point of view, I'm a lifetime learner and I love to learn different things. And to me, it was a perfect way to get the evidence that I knew was missing. So, you know, for a long time from the industry's point of view, I tried to interest academia to do research on how different cultures feel about money in particular Aboriginal Australians, and no one wanted to do the research. So I just said, I'll roll up my sleeves and do it myself. So, <laughs> um, very often, I think it needs people who are slightly crazy like me to do these things. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought it was quite topical right now, given everything going on in Australia. So I wanted to start the conversation with a little bit of discussion on how COVID is affecting the financial well-being of Australians from your research and what you've seen this year. Sure. 
So, you know, let's start with a little bit of a definition that is, you know, what is financial well-being? So, you know, across the world, we call it different things in different places. It's called financial health in some places, financial wellness in others. But in Australia, financial well-being is basically when you can enjoy life because of the way in which you're managing your money. So essentially, it means three things, that you can meet your everyday financial commitments, that you have a safety net in place in case you have any unexpected shocks, and that you're able to achieve your longer-term financial goals. So if you are able to answer yes to all three, then you have good financial well-being. So what's happened with COVID-19 is that it's not just a health crisis. It's actually an economic crisis that has struck a blow against each of these three drivers mm -hmm. of financial well-being. Um, and so, for example, ANZ, which has a financial well-being measure, and they measure it every quarter, um, their July measure found that COVID-19 has reversed any gains in financial well-being which had been achieved for the last six years. Oh, wow. All the way back through to 2014 mm -hmm. when they first started measuring financial well-being. Mm. So the reason is because, you know, the lockdowns and the job losses have meant that millions of people have either lost their jobs and therefore their income, or they've had their working hours really reduced. And this has had a terrible impact on their ability to meet all three things that we talked about, their everyday financial commitments, paying bills, utilities, having a safety net in place. You know, the maximum uh, that most people have is less than a month's savings, if at all they have any savings. So 50% of people don't have any savings at all. Mm. And those who do, very few have even one month's worth of expenses up their sleeves should they be hit by a financial shock, such as losing a job or having their hours reduced. And then, of course, the, the financial future, everything is so insecure that people are not able to rely on what their financial security might look like in the future. So everyone is very anxious about their ability to cope with the financial shock or to achieve well-being in their financial um, situation, which is why COVID is having such a poor impact on financial well-being. Mm, and I think it's especially hard this year because we just don't know what the next 12 months is going to look like. So it's so hard to even make some basic financial plans. That's right. And, you know, that that's why it's impacting, you know, all of these three areas. We have less money, so we are less we're able to pay for today. We have, we, you know, our savings are getting frittered away, so we have nothing for the future, and we don't have the security that in the in the longer term we'll be able to secure it. So yeah, it's it's really damaged uh, financial well-being in Australia. Mm. And you did quite a lot of research on the idea of financial resilience. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what that actually is and how do you build financial resilience in your own life. Sure. So I'll just backtrack a little bit. Yeah, you know, as from the industry's point of view, from a banking industry's point of view, for a long time, we've talked about financial literacy, which is the ability to make informed decisions about money. And we spent a lot of time and effort in the last 20 years trying to educate users to use money properly. But there was always that feeling that it's not just about the users. Surely there's more to the equation than just something you need to educate the user to do. And the answer is, of course, there is. There's a supply side to this. So, you know, from the industry's point of view, we need to be able to design products and services that actually meet the needs of consumer groups. We need to then provide access to those so that people who need the services are able to use them in a safe and affordable manner. And we need to make them available at the time that people need them. Um, you know, instead of having a bank branch closed or an ATM not working, so you can't 
access your money? What are different ways in which you can meet the needs of the consumer at the time that they meet it? So there was always that feeling that there's more to life than just informing the customer and increasing their literacy. And to us, that answer was the concept of resilience. So resilience is always the ability to bounce back from a shock. So financial resilience is no different. It is the ability to bounce back from a financial shock. And, you know, you and me, anyone, anyone can experience a temporary financial shock when, you know, they're faced with an unexpected event. It could be like a dentist bill. It could be your car has had an accident. You know, an unexpected event can put a stress temporarily on anyone. But then there is a whole section of our population who cannot recover from a shock over a long period of time. And that's the group that has low financial resilience. And the numbers might frighten you, but different studies have found that 12% of the Australian adult population, one in every five working Australians, so that's, you know, almost two and a half million people before COVID hit us, were so financially stressed that they could not recover from a financial shock so that they had low financial resilience. So it's actually significant percent of our population in a high-income, highly developed country, which is not equipped to be able to recover from a financial shock. So not having the ability to recover from a financial shock will impact every aspect of socioeconomic well-being, as you can imagine, not just for the individual, but also their household. So their physical health and well-being, their mental, emotional, and financial health and well-being. A lot of these things depend on their ability to have a safety net to recover from a shock. And unfortunately, not many of us have that uh, resilience in place. And this was even before COVID hit us. With COVID, of course, this is the aspect of uh, financial well-being, which has been the worst hit. So the ability to recover from a shock is, is really badly needed right now. Mm, and I think that's really interesting because you wouldn't expect Australia to have such a low level of financial resilience for a developed country. We, we think we're quite advanced, but the stats are a bit different, aren't they? It is. And see, this is the difference between having a higher income and having good resilience because it's not something that's dependent directly on income. What it actually is more impacted by is inequality. So unfortunately for Australia, and there's been some longitudinal research which has compared financial resilience and well-being of Australia with other highly developed countries, and we come out last. And one of the reasons that has been put forward as to why we are doing so badly, even though we have high income and high growth till you know the recession hit us, is because of the growing inequality. So when you have larger inequality, then what's happening is that there's a whole section of population who are getting further and further behind. And although the average across those who are getting richer and richer and those who are getting poorer and poorer, it averages out. So it looks as if we're still all doing relatively well as compared to others. But that section, which is doing worse, is actually getting more and more disadvantaged in every aspect. So that's what then reduces the resilience and the ability to recover from a shock because, you know, they were already suffering and then they've had a shock. There's no safety net or buffer to fall back on. And that's what's leading this, uh, you know, really worrying situation in terms of resilience. Mm, And I think it's important to acknowledge that some of it is systemic and some of it is based on government policy and not something an individual can change at that level. And so, yes, you can do a lot of things as an individual to change your financial situation, but sometimes there's barriers that you can't do that much about that are standing in your way from uh, hitting different financial milestones. And so what are some of the individual steps we can take to 
um, build financial resilience on our end? Yes. So, you know, you've asked such a good question and you raised such a good issue in terms of what is it that drives individual financial resilience? Mm. So, um, you know, I, I was so pleased that all of the literature from across the world is showing that an individual's financial resilience is influenced by a whole range of factors, many of which are outside their control. But it also depends very strongly on the socioeconomic characteristics of your household. So what is the household's access to employment, access to education, the household income, your parents' familiarity with finances, the social connectedness of your household? All of these factors directly influence your individual well-being. And it's not just the direct household, also the economic conditions, like you're saying, the systemic factors in the place where you live, geopolitical stability, economic growth, the access of social supports in place, the welfare um, supports that are in place, access to equal access to health, information, education and employment. All of these factors together determine an individual's well-being. So, you know, the, just to answer your question, an individual's resilience is not just up to them. All of these factors have to be influenced and moved positively in order to help the individual. And that's what the financial resilience framework basically acknowledges, that it's an ecosystem approach, that it's not just the individual that needs to make change. There are things that can be done by their family and close circle of family and friends. There are things that their local community, including their workplace, and their neighborhood can do. And then there are things that the national, you know, those who are in decision-making and policy-making roles at the national level can do, as well as the global community. So it's really an ecosystem approach. And the framework tries to find practical things that each one of these layers of the ecosystem can take. So, um, you know, just to share with you some practical examples, what can individuals do? Well, of course, individuals can make an effort to improve their own knowledge, to improve their own ability to practice that knowledge, which is capability, and improve their own behaviors. In particular, controlling their spending and borrowing behavior and introducing a savings habit. These are things that individuals can do. But then there are things that households can do. So this is having healthy conversations about money from the beginning making sure that children at an early age have an understanding of money and how money is to be used and how it can help them to achieve well-being at every stage of life. Preparing for retirement, you know, making sure that we have protection in place through retirement plans, superannuation insurance. These are things that the household can do. Then your local workplace can help you. So I'm working a lot on what a workplace can do. So what employers can do to improve financial wellness for their employees? And then what is it that the policymakers can do? You know, what are the policies and social supports that can be provided? These are very specific things that at a national level can be put in place to actually protect the individual. So my whole theory is that every part of the ecosystem has a role to play in improving financial health and well-being for individuals, and they should accept that responsibility. So financial resilience and well-being is everyone's business, is what I firmly believe. And I think that definitely needs to be a bigger topic of conversation because we don't often talk about the interaction of individuals and their community and their workplace and the government in terms of building financial well-being and resilience in Australians specifically. Um, and I think it's really interesting looking at how that interacts and how the different puzzle pieces can come together to build everyone's financial well-being up instead of just looking at what one individual can do. 
exactly. And, you know, very often people would say, oh, Veneta, you're dreaming. You know, that's a pipe dream. You can't actually do that in practice, can you? Well, I've actually demonstrated that it does work. So mm. for the last four years, I was at Good Shepherd Microfinance and I created a cross-sectoral collaboration just to achieve what I've talking about. So we had more than 40 organizations. We called it the Financial Inclusion Action Plan Program. And uh, more than 40 organizational leaders from different sectors. So they were from banks, superannuation, utilities, you know, universities, state governments, so the whole state government of Queensland, state government of uh, South Australia, along with not-for-profits such as Salvation Army and Good Shepherd. And what we did was we created a framework of practical actions and then we enabled each of these organizations to take those actions. So these 40 um, organizational leaders took more than 650 practical actions to improve financial resilience and well-being within their sphere of influence. And then we did an independent evaluation through the Center for Social Impact. And it found that the benefits were practical and genuine. So we could demonstrate how it has impacted the staff of these organizations and improved their well-being, how it has improved the client's feeling of well-being, it has reduced customer complaints, it's reduced the debt collection efforts that people had to make by proactively putting hardship policies in place so that clients who are experiencing financial difficulties can quickly be provided support. Um, so these are just some of the practical things that were done. Banks put in place safe and affordable products and services like accounts, which people on low incomes could use so that they could save small amounts without having to incur fees and penalties. And just by taking these practical steps, we demonstrated the benefit to society as a whole, as well as to the organization. So, um, you know, to me, it's not just a pipe dream. I've demonstrated that it can be done. And with my new social enterprise hat on, I'm you know, on that mission to prove that it can be done. Yeah, and I know that was something um, when we spoke earlier that you were really passionate about, actually being able to measure the impact that you're having and organisations are having when it comes to financial wellbeing because I, I think you were saying, yeah, it's all well and good to have different programs and have incentives and things like that. But if you can't actually measure if it's doing anything useful for the world, um, there's not as much point to it. Absolutely. Look, if you can't measure it, for me, you can't actually improve it because mm. you don't know what the baseline is. So how do you know whether or not you're improving and you're going in the right direction? Plus, at the end of the day, you know, the way I look at it, every sector has its own purpose. So the business is there to make commercial profit. Not-for-profit sector is there to look after those who cannot, you know, have some sort of a disadvantage and need support. The government is there to set policies. But at the end of the day, if they all combine their efforts, then the power of all of them together is much larger than the power of them working individually. And to me, that's where the benefits come from, from cross-sector collaboration and really measuring what the impact of that collaboration is. So these are all emerging ways of working together and it's the new and emerging ways of measuring collaborative and collective impact as well. But to me, that's the way of the future. And unless you can demonstrate to a business that they will do well in their business by helping others, you know, you can't expect them to keep investing. So to me, measuring is not just to show impact, it's also to be able to demonstrate the value of doing good to the business as well which I think is an important criteria for them. Mm, absolutely. And I came across you after I read an article you wrote about 
the three R's of financial well-being being refocus, refresh, and restart. And I thought it would be a really helpful concept for my listeners to hear about. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about those three R's. Sure. So, you know, the way I look at it, I, I always try to put together the best practice uh, methodologies that I see in different parts of the world and make it work for the context that I'm working in. So what I did was I took disaster recovery principles. Um, you know, th- these are very commonly put together for climate-related disasters or environmental disasters. And I was like, if you got a global best practice and all the countries are adopting these frames, why can't we use the same methodology for a financial disaster? So that was basically my 3R framework. Uh, I took the best practice disaster recovery principles and I applied them with the experience and research that I've done to say how can individuals and households and the businesses they work in. So because, you know, in our normal lives, we we live in a community and we work in communities. So to me, all three aspects are important. So how can individuals, households and their businesses have a simple framework of action so that should they face a financial shock, they know what are the things they can do to recover. And that's what refocus, refresh and restart is. So in refocus, basically what happens is that you need to be able to take a step back and look at the new normal, familiarize yourself with the risks that you now face, as well as the opportunities that might present themselves. Keep in mind as you go into your new normal. In refresh, what you do is once you've taken that step and you've identified all of the new risks you must mitigate and the new opportunities you might take advantage of, you need to prioritize. You can't do everything. People have a limited number of uh, you know, time, effort, whether it's an individual or a business or a household. You need to be able to prioritize those that you must address. And that's what refresh encourages you to do. How can you prioritize the risks that you must address, which are the hardest hitting, which are the highest likelihood and consequences, you know? And then what are the best opportunities which would work for your particular circumstances and put them together in a plan? And then restart is the ability to then enable that plan by implementing it. And for me, this is the beauty of recognizing that it's not just up to the individual. There are things that their household can do. There are things that their workplace and their neighborhoods can do. There are things that the national um, decision makers and policymakers can be advocated to do. And there are things that we can learn from the global experience. So for me, I always say that the action plan should have very clear actions that each of these um, layers of the ecosystem can take and enable all of them to work together so that we can best protect the individuals. So that's the 3R framework in a very short um, description. Um, And I really believe that that's uh, one of the simplest um, frameworks that we can use, whether we're an individual or a household or a business, um, to be able to recover from the financial shock that COVID has triggered. Mm, And I think that's quite a good thing to explore this year. And uh, going towards the end of the year, people might be ready to start refocusing on their financial goals and building their financial resilience and for their family and their community. And I think that's quite a, a good way to have a look at it. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why I'm here. I'm really passionate about using every opportunity I can to share my knowledge, to work with every part of the community, and then also enable those cross-sectoral collaborations. Because, you know, when you work on a one-on-one basis, you can only have this much of an impact. But if you can actually get together a collective and make sure that the collaboration is able to take place, then you can really scale up your reach and impact 
And for me, that is the best way that I can put together with my social enterprise hat on an opportunity. So what I'm doing is currently with RMIT's Launch Hub, which is a pre-accelerator. I've developed a program. I'm calling it the Workplace Financial Health Check Program, which is designed to do justice to help workplaces take the lead in improving financial health and well-being for their workplace. And I think that, you know, that's a practical thing that all businesses, no matter which sector that they're working in, can put in place. Mm, and there's way so we can actually build each other up as a community. Um, and I think it's also really interesting to focus on ways that we can help our friends and family and wider community build financial resilience as well. So sort of pulling all of ourselves up with um, with this. And the power of everyone working together, I think, is so much greater than just leaving the individual to manage this on their own. And to me, that's the beauty of what I can bring to the world. And that's what I'm absolutely on a mission <laughs> to be able to enable and make financial resilience and well-being everyone's business. Yeah. So when we if we say we want to after listening to this go and help our friends and our community and our family learn more about improving their own personal finances and building their financial resilience what are some practical steps that we can do okay so i've written um quite a bit about this so you know there's some practical articles which are out there which are on my website yep. and you know you can just go in read them and they've got a whole lot of practical things you can do in each of these areas in the refocus refresh and restart but as, as one example, for example, in the refocus area where we're in, we've just had a budget announcement yesterday. So, you know, I would encourage uh, people to have a read of the materials. Contact me if you'd like through my email or my website. This is my whole life. You know, I, 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 I exist in order to be able to do the best that I can to share whatever little insights and learnings I have so that I can actually help individuals help themselves as well as others around them to improve um, resilience and well-being for themselves, yeah? Mm, absolutely. And I, I think we often don't realise how much control we do have our, over our own finances. Uh, most people don't even know they can actually pick their own superannuation fund. And so it's amazing once you start learning a little bit that you actually have quite a bit more control over your own destiny than maybe you previously thought. Exactly. And very often it's a question of listing those things down. That gives you then the power to say, okay, these five things I wish I could have, but it's outside my control. I can't do. But these four things, these are things I can do. And that list will be different for each individual based on your own circumstances. But there's definitely checklists, which you know I've tried to include in my um, writing, um, which give you this, you know, here's everything that you could do. Now pick and choose the ones that apply to your situation. So that's what my um, social enterprise is trying to do, create these specific programs and almost, you know, checklists, as it were, of everything that you could do based on where you are. And then, of course, the individual does have to customize that based on their own personal circumstances because everyone's circumstances are different, right? And one response doesn't necessarily cover it all. There's no silver bullet. Uh, but, you know, just knowing that there's uh, things that you can do to proactively manage your finances it gives people a lot more courage that this is something that they can influence. And if they stick at it, you know, financial behaviors take time to change. So I always say, you know, stick at it for at least three months, whatever your resolution and your goals are. And that then, you know, as you achieve the small goals, it gives you more courage to 
aim for larger and larger goals. So I always say, you know, take those small steps because they then give you the courage to take bigger steps. And that's how you build your resilience so that you can achieve well-being. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a perfect way to finish off this episode. So, Vanita, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge. And I'll include all of the links to the various resources you mentioned in the show notes. So if anyone wants to have a little investigate, they can definitely do that. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you for inviting me. Sometimes people find that I talk too much, but I'm absolutely (laughs) passionate about this subject. So thank you so much for allowing me to share my thoughts with you today. Wonderful. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money podcast.